invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 as we enter another Advent series. I'm going to take a break from Acts and spend a few weeks considering the question, why did Jesus come into the world? And this morning, our text is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, but for context, I will read verses 4 through 10. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us ask our Father for his help to see the light of the Christ we will proclaim. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come before you once again, we remain overwhelmed by the darkness that is in this world and that is in our own hearts. We confess that we are often still blinded by sin and the devil. And when we think of Jesus and when we look to him, he does not appear very glorious and beautiful to us. So I pray that as we hear your word once again, that your Holy Spirit would speak your light, the light of Christ into our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts that we would see him as he is in all of his wonder and grace and beauty and majesty. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God. Well, as we enter the month of December, we enter into another Advent season leading up to Christmas. 
Advent is a season both of celebration and of anticipation. We celebrate Christ's first coming because when Mary gave birth to Jesus, she gave birth to the hope of our salvation. The long foretold Savior of the world had finally come into the world. But we also anticipate Christ's second coming, when he will return to complete the salvation he secured. The hymn we'll sing at the end, Joy to the World, was not actually written about Christ's first coming. It was written about Christ's second coming. So like the Old Testament saints, we are waiting and longing for Christ to come into the world. So during this Advent season, we are going to reflect on why Jesus came into the world. And thankfully, we don't have to guess. The Bible gives us several clear statements telling us exactly why Jesus came. And so, I've chosen four of these statements for us to consider over the next four Sundays. And the first is here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So one answer to our question is Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Well, who then is the devil? Simply put, the devil is God's chief enemy and therefore the chief enemy of all God's people. In fact, that's what his title means. Satan from the Hebrew, devil from the Greek mean the adversary, the enemy. Now, he's not eternal with or equal to God, but he is fundamentally opposed to God. As best we can tell from scriptures, the devil was a created angelic being who rebelled against God. And so now he is the chair of the opposition party. He is the leader of the resistance. He is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, which is why Paul refers to him as the God of this world. He is a treacherous traitor, and he is the chief hater of God. And so his will is to always resist and fight against God's will. What then are his works? Well, the answer from the text that I just read for us is the devil's work is sin. Sinning is his labor of love because sin is what the devil loves and sin is therefore what the devil does. You notice this, for as John says in verse 5, Jesus appeared to take away sin. And then in verse 8, he says, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so we see that taking away sin is 
at one level, destroying the devil's works, which equates the two. And likewise, in verses 9 and 10, John implies that those who keep on sinning are the children of the devil because they are imitating their father. They're doing what the devil does. So sin is imitating the devil. When we sin, we look like and live like the devil which again shows that sinning is the devil's work. Jesus even tells the Jews who were opposing him in his own day, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So sins are the devil's works, because sin is the devil's will in opposition to God's will. So to sin is to oppose God's will. Or as John says, in verse 4, sin is lawlessness, because God's law is the declaration of God's character and God's will, who he is and what he wants. Lawlessness, therefore, is to hate God's character and work against God's will. It is to hate whatever God loves, to love whatever God hates, because sin loves to hate God. Sin says yes whenever God says no, and sin says no whenever God says yes. Which is why Jesus told the Jews who were rejecting him, you are just like your devilish dad. Because kids naturally imitate their parents, at least they do when they are young. They may physically look like their parents, but they also begin to live like their parents and often love what their parents love. So whenever I'm watching sports and one of my kids comes to join me, the first question is, Dad, who are you cheering for? And when I tell them, they say, that's, that's who I'm cheering for. My kids have no personal experience with Michigan State or with the University of Michigan, and yet they are already diehard Spartan fans who despise the Wolverines. Why? Because I'm a diehard Spartan fan who despises the Wolverines. I've even had to calm my children down in public because when they see someone wearing U of M apparel, they start saying very loudly, Dad, Dad, do, do you see that? And then they start making gagging noises. Now, inwardly, I am never more proud of my kids at that moment. But outside, I have to say, kids, kids, no, it's, it's okay. Chris, Talitha, often just automatically assumes anyone who's wearing Michigan apparel cannot possibly be a Christian. And so 
I gently remind her, sweetie, remember, Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. So they probably are a Christian because that's who Jesus came for. Not really. I, I love many wolverines. But we can be more specific. Yes, generally speaking, the devil's work is to sin. It is to oppose all that God delights in and designs. But what is God the Father's chief delight? It is his only begotten and beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, the Father says of Jesus at his baptism, with whom I am well pleased. And what, therefore, is the Father's chief design? It is to glorify his Son, especially through the salvation of sinners. God designed the world, and he designed the salvation of the world to exalt his Son above all else. That's what the whole plan is for. So Paul says of the Son, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything was created for Christ and to exalt Christ. And Paul goes on to say, he, that is Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul is abundantly clear. Everything is to show the preeminence of Christ, meaning he is the best, the most valuable, the most precious, the most glorious, the most beautiful being in the universe. And everything, including salvation, is to show us this preeminence. For Christ is held out the brightest and the clearest as he saves sinners. So God saves sinners because he loves sinners. It's one reason. But he also saves sinners because he loves his son above all else. And this shows the world how glorious his son is. Therefore, the devil's sinful opposition to God is most directly aimed at opposing Christ and the salvation of sinners. The devil despises the Son, and so he works to thwart the Son's saving work because Christ is working to save. The devil hates sinners because Jesus loves them, and he works to destroy them because Jesus wants to save them. 
His will is to destroy whatever Jesus loves and whatever magnifies Jesus. Because he doesn't want us to see the Son's glory as we receive the Son's grace, which means he doesn't want anyone to be freed from and forgiven of their sins. The devil's work is not just to sin himself. His work is to lead others into sin and keep them there. He wants sinners to fully and finally give in and then give up. And he does this primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in two ways. Temptation and accusation. Both of these are works of deception. Jesus said the devil is the father of lies. He is a deceiver. But temptation is the devil's deceiving work aimed to lead you into sin. So you'll give in. Accusation is the devil's deceiving work to keep you in sin so that you will once and for all give up. So the first of these is temptation. If sin is like an ocean, then temptation is the devil's work to draw you into those waters. Jesus said of temptation, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I wonder if Jesus uses that, that analogy of judgment for a tempter, because in one sense, that's what the tempter is trying to do for others. He is trying to, to lure them into sin with one hand and slip a heavy stone around their neck with the others so that they will sink in the waters. And that's what the devil has been doing from the very beginning. When we first encounter the devils, we heard Pastor Ryan reading in Genesis 3, what do we find him doing? He is tempting Eve. Now, there are two sides to the coin of temptation. The first side is in temptation, the devil is trying to make sin look lovely. When the devil tempts Eve, he does so by making disobedience sound really desirable. He tells her that disobeying God and eating the fruit is going to make her more than God has made her. It's going to give her a better life than God has given her. It will make her knowledgeable, powerful, wise, and autonomous. And so his words start to distort her vision. And so the next verse says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. The devil tempted Eve by making sin appear attractive 
and then redirecting her desires. And this is still how Satan tempts us. Temptation is, as the phrase goes, putting lipstick on a pig. And not one of those cute teacup pigs, one of those big, smelly, muddy hogs. The devil dresses it up and says, oh, isn't this beautiful? And then he dilates our eyes so everything goes out of focus and we say, yes, this, this is beautiful. But kids, when you give in to sin, you are kissing a pig. That's what you're doing. That's what we're all doing. That's not pretty. If you saw someone kissing a pig, you'd think there's, there's something really wrong here. In temptation, the devil blinds us to sin's hideous complexion. He makes disobedience feel desirable, sin taste savory, and unbelief look beautiful. But the blindness cuts two ways. Because in order to blind us to the ugliness of sin, he has to also blind us to the beauty of righteousness as it shines its most brightly in Christ. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul writes, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, holiness is true beauty. Righteousness is radiance. God's glory, therefore, is the public display of his holy, righteous beauty. And the sun, we're told in Hebrews, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the clearest display of who God is in his holiness. And so to see the Son as he truly is, is to see God in his glory. But this requires a spiritual sight. Many who saw Jesus walking on earth thought, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But for those who were enlightened by God's Spirit, who gave them new spiritual hearts with spiritual eyes, when they saw Jesus, they saw, as John said, his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, salvation is in part simply the miraculous sight of Jesus. One of Jesus' most frequent miracles was to heal those who were blind, because in this way, he was demonstrating what had to happen, not just with our eyes, but with our hearts in order to be saved. Paul describes conversion this way. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so as Paul prays for others, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And it's that sight that the devil is working so hard to keep you from. He wants to keep Christ veiled and our hearts blind. Because he knows that when we can see Jesus as he is, the war is over. Christ has won. No matter how good or beautiful anything else is, when you see the beauty of Christ, everything pales in comparison. What could be more desirable than what is objectively the most desirable person in the world? The dimness of the moon is only clear when compared to the light of the sun. And so in the light of Christ, sin is exposed as hideous and even other good things that God has made are seen as dim compared to Christ. So the devil not only tempts by making sin look desirable, he tempts by trying to make God look undesirable. He tries to make God look cruel and righteousness look restrictive. We, we see that in the temptation in the garden. See, the devil's not only presenting the fruit as a great good, he's subtly speaking of God as a great evil. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You can hear the subtle implication. How could a good God keep you from good things? He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, God knowing good and, and evil. Again, he's subverting her, her, uh, her ability to see who God is. Temptation is deception designed not only to blind you to sin, but it is to blind you to God so that you will flee from God and fly to sin. He wants you to give in, but he also wants you to give up. And this is where accusation comes in. The words Satan and devil not only can mean adversary, they can mean accuser. The devil wants, you, wants to lead you into sin's prison, and then he wants to kill any hope you might have of ever escaping. He wants us to give up. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest who's standing before the angel of the Lord wearing filthy clothes. And standing at Joshua's right hand like a prosecutor is Satan who is accusing him. 
John likewise has a vision of Satan in Revelation chapter 12. And in this vision, Satan is thrown down. And when that happens, a loud voice proclaims, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So here again, we see the devil at work. It's one of his daily works. It is to accuse God's people. Now, how can he accuse God's people? Because Satan knows the law. He's lawless, but that's not because he is ignorant of the law. It's because he hates the lawgiver. When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he quotes Bible verses to Jesus. He knows what God has said. Likewise with Eve, Satan could only question and twist God's command because he knew exactly what God had told the man and the woman. And Satan knows that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And he knows that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so he loves to remind sinners of their guilt under the law and accuse them before the throne of God. Because there is more than one way to drown a person. He can lure and lead people to swim deeper in sin's ocean so they're so far down that there's no hope of coming up for air. But he doesn't have to actually get you to dive deeper. He just has to lead you to stop swimming. And then you'll eventually sink. He wants to discourage us. His accusations are designed to steal the strength of hope so we stop fighting to get out of that ocean. He only wants us to hear half of God's word. When God warns and threatens judgment, when he declares the curse and penalty for sin. So in tempting Jesus, the devil is very careful of what verses he quotes and what verses he just leaves aside. See, the devil wants us to hear what God's word says. You are a sinner. You broke the law. You're guilty. You're cursed. You're separated from God. God will judge and condemn sin. God's wrath is coming upon the unrighteous. The devil's more than happy for you to hear all of that. See, sometimes the devil accurately quotes God. He just only quotes God in part. Sometimes he subtly misquotes God like he did with Eve. And sometimes he just tries to confuse us so we don't understand what God's word says. Take our passage, for example. John wrote this first letter to help God's people Know that they belong to God, that they were his, and that they were saved. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Yet some passages in 1 John shake the confidence of God's people, including the text that I read 
for you this morning. For we, we read things like everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. We read no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We read, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. We read, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. And we read, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We read all of those verses and the devil reminds us, you know, you keep on sinning. You know, you don't always practice righteousness. You must not be of God. You must be my child and not his. But is John arguing that the evidence of salvation is the complete absence of sin? Is he arguing here for sinless perfection in the believer? No. John is not saying that sin automatically disqualifies you from being a Christian. So that if you sin once, it means you're no longer a Christian or never were. We know that's not what John is arguing because in chapter 1, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John says, any of you who are claiming that, that Christians are sinless, you don't actually have the truth. We'll be sinless one day, but not today. We also know John's not talking about sinless perfection here in chapter 3 because of the tenses that he uses, which I think are, are pretty well captured in the English by the phrases practice of sinning, keeps on sinning, and the language of abiding. See, John is referring to a permanent, habitual giving into and giving up in sin. He is talking about when there is no fight and no repentance. He's not arguing Christians never sin. He's arguing Christians never fully and finally give in and give up with regard to sin. So here are two quick analogies to, to help you understand what John is speaking of when he talks about practicing and abiding. So first, practicing. Think of learning an instrument. When I was young, I really wanted to become a piano player, so I started learning and practicing the piano. That was my instrument. I wasn't practicing other instruments. It's just the piano. Now, didn't mean I, I practiced every day. There were days my parents got after me. He, he didn't practice. And so the next day, okay, got to practice again. When I first started playing, I hit a lot of wrong notes. I'm better now, but I still hit wrong notes. But I haven't switched instruments. I don't know what you think a sinful instrument would be. Maybe the drums or guitar, like that would be really bad. Let you know, for most of my life, I was a drummer. I drummed in church. So for those of you who thought I was cool, 
You probably don't know. And maybe some of those who thought I wasn't cool, you probably still don't. But either way, I didn't give up on the piano. Even on days where I, I didn't practice like I wanted to or days that I wasn't playing as well that I wanted to. That's what John is arguing here. There's, there's two instruments. There's sin and there is righteousness by faith in Christ. Which one are you practicing? Not perfectly, but which is your instrument? That's what he's saying here. Not sinless perfection, but which one are you practicing? Or consider the language of abiding and, and families. Talking about who are children of God, who are children of the devil. Saying children of God, we abide with God, he abides with us. Think of God adopts us as his kids. We now live in his house. My kids live with me. Are they perfect kids? No. Do they always do what I tell them to do? No. But whose house do they wake up in every morning? And who do they call dad? Me. They, they haven't run away, renounced me as their father to go live in another house. They're, they're still mine. Again, the, the Christian will disobey and sin and mess up, but we're living in God's house. The, the unbeliever is the one who's living in a completely different house. That's what John is arguing here. The devil's children give in to sin fully and finally when he tempts them. Sin is their home. The devil is their dad. God's children, though, live in the house of righteousness by faith in Christ. Do we still give in to sin at times? Yes. Do we still wallow under the weight of accusation at times? Yes. But we don't move out of the house. Why? Because Jesus has destroyed these works of the devil on our behalf. So in closing, how does he destroy the works of the devil? Here are two ways. Number one, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil as he came into the world as the light of truth. See, to live in sin is to live in darkness and blindness. The world of sin is a sunless and sightless world. So there's, there's two problems. The world is dark. We're blind. So in Satan's kingdom, not only... Does the sun never rise? But even if it did, we couldn't see it. But Jesus came as the light of the world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 1, 9. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 5. But how is Jesus shining? Both as the revelation and the revealer of truth. See, deception is darkness. Truth is light. Truth is that golden sunrise. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So he came as the fulfillment of everything that God had said and promised. So Jesus is God's revelation. And he brought this light in his life, death, and resurrection. Because in this way, he took away sin with its darkness and blindness. 
So his, his saving work was overcoming this darkness. But he's also the revealer of this truth. He's the one who teaches us what it all means. He teaches us what God has said. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, Jesus told Pilate, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus came to preach the word that he fulfilled. He came proclaiming the gospel of God. And still today, Christ's light shines wherever Christ's word is preached. Preaching is nothing more than presenting Christ for others to see. When you read your Bible, when you hear the Bible preached, the light is shining. The sun has risen. But as I said, that's not enough. Because the problem isn't only darkness, the problem is blindness. The sun rising is not in and of itself enough to make blind people see it. There's light, but there's still no sight. And this is why Jesus also sent his spirit, as we've been learning in Acts. The spirit of truth to lead people into truth, to open the eyes of their hearts so they can see the Christ that his word is proclaiming. So preaching is holding up Christ before the world. This is the sunlight. But you only can see when light is taking place in your heart as well. When the spirit is speaking, let light shine out of darkness. And when that happens, the devil's deceptions are destroyed because we can finally see sin for what it is and we can finally see Christ for who he is. So Jesus is the truth that is, is dispelling the devil's lies. In taking away sin, he took away the devil's works of blindness and darkness. Removing sin is restoring sight. The cross shattered the darkness and broke the power of the God of this world. But second and finally, Jesus destroyed the devil's works as he appeared as the righteousness for justification. See, the devil isn't lying. When he tells us that we are guilty under the law and deserve the penalty and curse of eternal death and damnation, he's just not telling us the whole truth. When the devil tempted Jesus using God's word, what was Jesus' response? Essentially, each time he said, yeah, but that's not all God said. <laughs> so the devil would quote God's word and Jesus would tell him what else God had said. So what has God told us? Not only that we are guilty under the law, but he's also told us that when Jesus went to the cross, he not only took away sin's power to blind and deceive, he took away sin's power to enslave and condemn. 
When you trust in Christ, you're not actually guilty under the law and condemned by the law anymore. Why? One, because Jesus paid the penalty and he bore the curse for our sin on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. God's wrath, his justice was executed on Christ when he hung on the cross. Which means for those who have faith in Jesus, it's paid in full. So when the devil tells you, you have sinned and you are cursed and condemned, you may remind him, yes, I have sinned, but Jesus bore the curse and condemnation of that sin on my behalf. He has paid for all my past sin. And when the devil says, yes, but you're still sinning even now in your heart, you may respond, yes, that may be true, but Jesus has paid for my present sin as well. And when the devil says, yet again, okay, but you will sin again tomorrow, you may reply, that is certainly true. But Jesus has paid for my future sins as well. He has paid for all my sin, past, present, and future. His blood atoned for and washed away all my sin for all time. But you are also no longer guilty under the law because Jesus has supplied the righteousness that God's law requires. You are not just innocent of, under the law, you are declared as actively righteous under the law. Your sinful clothes have been removed and righteous garments have been put on. That's what Zechariah saw with Joshua. He was standing in filthy clothes, but the Lord said through his angel, remove the filthy garments. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. But how can we be righteous? Well, Paul tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The devil wants you to hear that. He just wants you to stop there. But Paul doesn't stop there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul concludes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are not condemned because Christ bore your condemnation. More than that, you are justified and counted as righteous because Jesus is your righteousness. So when the devil says you are not righteous and cannot be justified, you may remind him you are right that I am not righteous, but the ground of my justification has never been, nor will it ever be, my righteousness. Christ is righteous, and Christ is all mine. The devil tempts, and the devil accuses. But praise be to God that the Son of God appeared to absolutely destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask now for your beloved children that even as they wrestle with sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that you will speak the light of your truth, the light of Jesus Christ into their hearts once again to remind them that Christ has already paid for that sin and he remains their righteousness by which they are justified before your throne. And when the evil one seeks to tempt us and make sin appear lovely and Christ appear undesirable, I pray that you would speak the light of Christ again into our hearts, that we would see the hideousness of sin and we would see the surpassing beauty and worth of our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.